This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films. My name is Marshall Smith, and we do get into horror films every week. And it is a I'm thinking a lot about this. I it's a genre that allows for uh, exploration of people that most others don't. And I'm Laura Patterson. Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado Boulder, and I love horror because it gives us a chance to talk about right and wrong in a way that I think a lot of other genres of film don't do or don't dig into as deeply. And so that was one of the great things about this film, I think, was that it it presented at least a a somewhat nuanced discussion of how we should live. And that's one of my favorite things to talk about is how we should live and how we should treat each other. And so, yeah. Nice. This is the... Second in a four-part mini-series we are doing devoted to the films of Zach Parker. This is the second of of those four episodes, but because of getting access to these early films, we are watching his first film this week. This is Zach Parker's 2006 film, In Exchange. The synopsis on IMDb is, is, Maury has a problem. He is a college freshman who is taken advantage of, picked on, and ignored. However, this is the monotony that Maury. However, this is the monotony that Maury has come to expect and subsequently rely on. This is what college life is for Maury until one day when he makes an agreement and his problems begin to be eliminated one by one. We appreciate you joining us. We're doing this particularly because we had seen his two final films, Scalene and Proxy, and were excessively impressed by those two films. And so if you are working through this with us, keep, keep working with us. Give us faith for another week. And in the meantime, if you want to listen to any of our other episodes, our entire catalog of previous episodes is available on our website, collectivenightmares.com for free. If you do listen, we would love it if you would like us or review us. Certainly subscribe to us wherever you're finding podcasts. We are on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, We are still recording via Zoom because of social distancing for COVID-19. So just please understand that that's where our audio is at. And we're still working on that, trying to resolve that to be able to do that remotely and get some higher quality. You can find us on Instagram at Collective Nightmares. Did I miss anything, Laura? No spoilers, I don't think. Oh, that's good. That's what we're saying. No no spoilers, but no, no spoilers except for the film itself. And we do dive into the films with the basic idea that you have, you're familiar with it. So it, it's worth revisiting the film or, or watching it when you give us a listen. With that, we'll, uh, we'll start our discussion. I enjoyed this more than I like, more than I enjoyed Quench. I thought this was much more, yeah, I don't know. It was, uh, I was going to say interesting. It was just a better, it was just a better film. This to me serves as like a prologue to Scalene and Proxy much more so than 
Quench did. At least there were there were kind of elements. And I was looking this to me. So this is 2006 when this comes out. And this to me reeks of, I was looking up his age because I was like, God, I wonder if they made this as college kids over, you know, over spring break or something. They, uh, they got access to the dorms, which uh, they didn't. He's, he was born 78 and this is 2006. So 20, late 20s. Maybe he had friends who were, clearly they had access to whatever university. So he was, he was older than that. But so again, with me, like as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, this is really what they're doing. They're basically just using their college campus and they're using what they have to, to make a film. I have to say, it's not the greatest film, but it's a film and they made it. And I give him great credit. I give them all great credit for doing it. There are times... <laughs> when I don't know if this ever happens to you, what I wonder like, what if I had just taken the two hundred thousand dollars that I spent on a PhD and invested that in that in making a movie that I could shop the film festival circuit? I mean, you hear of people spending that and going to Sundance and it getting bought for five million dollars or whatever, you know. So I do respect that he took his shot. He made his film. It's a pretty classic slasher film. This is actually, I have to say that this actually made me appreciate having seen Phantasm because I feel like there was a little bit of illusion to the, to the tall man. Was there? I think I have completely blocked out Phantasm. <laughs> Just the, the tall, creepy man who's like... I remember a ball that I hated. <laughs> and that is literally right now the only thing I'm remembering about Phantasm. It was a gold ball or something, right? Right, That's but the... All I got. But, but the villain is the tall man, which is what he's called, which is the creepy, tall, stern-looking man who just stands there and is presumably controlling the ball and who is like the keeper of the moratorium or the mausoleum or the crematorium or whatever the building that all this happens. I find it really bizarre that I actually, for real, have no recollection whatsoever of what you're saying. I hated that promo. I hated it. And I just completely just let those brain cells go. The tall man was the Bad Air film. I remember that. Also true. No recollection of Phantasm at all. I agree with you that this was a better film for a lot of reasons. Than Quench. Than Quench. One being that it it actually had a, uh, I wanted to say moral, but I don't necessarily mean moral, but it had a, it had meaning. And it, it was, the whole film was directed at driving that meaning home. And that to me feels like like a, like a solid contribution that a film can make. And when, when any film is lacking in that, I struggle. But Quench, you know, after our conversation, I was probably more confused even than I started the conversation in terms of what it did or didn't possibly intend to do. And this one, it wrapped itself up into a nice little package at the end. And I appreciate that along the same lines of what you're saying, that it was incredibly low budget. Even though it was, it was okay. I could follow the film, the acting wasn't distractingly bad or anything like that. It was, it was fine. And yeah, it had a point and it, it effectively delivered that point. The effects were fine for what they were working with. You know, it, it was all right. It didn't offend me the way Quench did. Right. <laughs> that was a, an improvement over last time. I had some flashbacks to Tucker and Dale that we'll have to get to later. But oh, sure. right. yeah, it was a solidly all right. It was just bizarrely linear though. I have to say all of all of these two recent movies we've seen of Zach Parker's are not at all 
what I think of as him. Like when I reference Zach Parker movies, what I usually reference is the nonlinear, everything is effort. You have to think about everything because it's always not what you think. And it's like just going absolutely out of his way, I think to make every scene meaningful, but also meaningful in a way that you've not seen it before and you have to pay attention or you're not going to understand what's happening. And these are like nothing like that at all. Like nothing. It's just very, this happens, that happens, that happens. An hour into the movie, well, you've, you've still already seen this entire film, but let's just play it out. Oh, it's, just, it's odd. Odd. Very, very different than his later stuff. It is, but I think that's what, what alluded to Scalene and Proxy much more for me, where, like you said, there was a clear there was a clear message behind the film and it was all directed towards this. And there was, there was a twist sort of, there was, it was an effort at it. And Wait, yeah, what are you referring to as the twist? That he is, he is the doppelganger. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I kind of wondered all throughout, like, is he, is he not? Oh, I guess he's not. Oh, okay. He is. But yeah, sure. So it's a reveal, you know, sure. I mean, it may not be the most sophisticated in the history of the world, but, uh, um, but yeah, and again, for who knows? I mean, it, it very well could have been, or it certainly seemed like me and a bunch of friends got got a hold of a camera and a little bit of, and maybe that basically that's it, and access to like film at the university. And here's what we could do. And with the linear, particularly for a first first film, shoot, they may well have shot it. It was just like you could see how. How about this? Just yes, the level of complexity jump for Scalene and Proxy was extraordinary from what I remember. So I'm very curious to see that. I'm really curious to see them now that we've seen these. But yeah, this is a film we could actually talk about where as Quench was, like you just said, was was ultimately it was just confused. There was no real message. This was, we have our main character who's the social, socially isolated. We have the crisis moment of him being humiliated and uh, abused at the party. And then we have these scenes of vengeance. So it was like very, very formula with the sort of twist of, of the doppelganger. And yes, and those, the popular people or the popular guys, the guys who, who urinate on him are the, jerky you know masculine whatever and and then yes and then we have the who's who's the blonde laura the girl the blonde woman yes laura okay she ends up befriending him so and it's but it's out of pity and and so what is our message and then the 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 tall man the doppelganger the figure i guess it is in the in the credits comes in and says, you, you've repressed all this anger and, and everything else. And, uh, and when you do that, it, it comes out in, in the form of all this uh, excessive violence. And uh, so what, what is our message? And so what? That. It was absolutely what the tall man said. You have to accept and realize that you have, you know, you have feelings, you have desires, you have to be in touch with yourself and in touch with that because as long as you're not in touch with it, you're, yeah, you're repressing all of these things and it's going to come out sideways in all of these ways that can be really problematic. And that, I thought that was great. Honestly, what, okay. If this had been a standard slasher film, which 
for the first good chunk of the movie, I, I kind of expected it to be, then our protagonist would have been, I'm thinking it's, it's one of those cases where he's enacting revenge because it's deserved, right? And because the, the types of bullying behavior that all these other people are doing is problematic. And so he's going to enact his, his revenge, but we're going to see people, we're going to see evil happen to people that deserve it. And the message is then that they were wrong. And that's fine. But I will say that I was kind of critical throughout the film of our main character for exactly the reason that gets highlighted at the end, that he, he was just so passive and he was so painful to be around. And it, I was having flashbacks to Rabid. Reminded me a lot of Rabbit in the scene where our main character in Rabbit, I, I think it's when she first gets to her friend's house or something and, and they're all going out and we in the camera get left with her. And I yeah. thought, oh God, I remember <laughs> saying that on the podcast, do we have to be here? I do not want to hang out with this woman anymore. Oh my gosh, painful. I felt that way when, when what was our main, oh, I had it and I lost it. Maury? Maury. When Maury's roommate invited him to the party and Maury decides not to go. And then I was like, come on, camera, let's go to the party. <laughs> no. Oh, darn, we're staying here. And, and so I was so, I was so critical of Maury. And also, we can get to this tangent in a second, but critical in the Tucker, versus, Tucker and Dale versus evil kind of way of Laura's relationship with Maury and how Laura's role was not to be a sentient being with feelings that make sense, but rather just to be the prize for Maury. And totally. it, it bothered me that Maury was not being problematized. And so I thought that was great, honestly, at the end to really tie it together and have the message be, it was like there were two messages. One message is, yeah, the bullies were wrong and the violence that got enacted in the film told us that they deserved that. And that's nice. But beyond that, Maury was wrong. And so it's almost like both ends of, it's kind of like one spectrum and both ends of it were criticized. And that wow. was cool. I like that a lot. And I, that to me really pulled together meaning in a way that I, I respected by the end. I think a lot of films of the slasher type, revenge type genres don't do that. That is very well said. And I think that is a further allusion to the more sophisticated arguments that I remember him making in Scaling and Proxy. Because like you said, it's just having that where you're critiquing both ends of a continuum or of a spectrum. Even that is more sophisticated than a decent number of slasher films. To try and navigate some sort of middle ground that's not just here's good and here's evil and here's this. And even with, to reinforce that, Lara is totally yes, but she's also like pity fucking him. It got better when it was clear that that was the case. I will say for the first however long that we saw Laura, Laura was absolutely Allie from Tucker and Dale. Right. She was just there to like him for no reason that was really super believable on her part other than she was, again, the prize. It was what we said in Tucker, Tucker and Dale versus Evil was that we had these two conflicting versions of masculinity. And great that you're critiquing the sort of hegemonic masculinity, bullying, posturing sort of masculinity. But when you critique that by giving the other person who really doesn't, their form of masculinity might be preferable to the other form, but that doesn't mean that that somehow justifies their entire existence, I guess. And so when you have this female character that comes in who was, I think was just absolutely the trophy to be handed oh, yeah. a better form of masculinity, that really does a disservice to female characters in general, and it makes it very much a man's story about, about how men should be, and here's what you deserve if you do this. And it was painful. It was painful watching Laura be with him. 
really painful because <laughs> she deserves better than that. And, and I don't say that like he's, he's not a monster. I mean, I guess he's killing people, but when we don't know that, he's not a monster like the bullies are, but he's also not, he's not giving her what I, unless, unless we knew more about her that somehow this was really what she wanted. I don't want to pigeonhole everybody and say nobody could want that, but he was not contributing. And she was, she was there. Yeah, we're back to Rabbit again. Because there was a character like that in Rabbit as well, right? The sort of boyfriend. Yes. Who, I don't I think I was just exactly as critical of him in that film as I am being of Laura in this film. That why do you want her? What's wrong with you? And what are you, what are you doing trying to be someone else's savior, I guess, to feel good about yourself? Or what exactly is going on here? Like that's, I feel like I'm, I'll, I'll stop. But I don't know if you should stop. It's... What is the woman's name in Tucker and Dale? Allie. Allie? I'm going to add that to our collective nightmare-isms. The <laughs> when a woman is handed to a man as a prize. Yes. <laughs> rather than <laughs> as an actual human being who would make that right. on her own. Right, yes. Because like you said with Maury, like, he's still so painfully, oh, do you really want to hang out? We don't ever see him open up or blossom, if you will, to being funny or engaging or show off your intelligence if you're this student or there's nothing like he doesn't ever put out anything but he brings her a rose i was honestly missing dale a tiny bit i was like for how critical i was of dale he had a little little something yeah he had a little bit of humor and his niceness wasn't dale's niceness wasn't i mean he was shy but once he was like oh yeah ali you're cool he was like they didn't carry that out, but there was, I don't know. But yes, there was a little bit of there. And, and with Maury, it was, yeah, there was nothing. Right. So let me ask you this. But wasn't the other girl, Jenny, isn't she who his roommate said is who he actually liked in the beginning? No, it was Laura. It was Laura. Okay. Okay. That's a crucial, uh, crucial detail. Um, so he does pay the price of... He gets the gain of killing his abusers, but he pays the price of losing the girl that he liked. And the gain was from him. No, that's not right. I don't know if you want to call that a gain. Do we call that a gain? His repression led to... Sorry, I got a siren. His repression led to... Instead of, I, I guess what would be the alternative, him just standing up for himself and, and not ending up in the position of being at the party. If he would have expressed some of this throughout, uh, he would have not had to have this doppelganger turn up and do the killing for him. It would have been a more, it would have been some sort of reasonable response. No, and the, the doppelganger specifically says something about, I took what was rightfully mine. Yeah. And that, I don't know exactly what that means, but I was trying to twist that because I wanted it to work and I feel like it might work. I was trying to twist that into sort of the, the sideways nature of repressed emotion coming out so that if he had actually dealt with it and thought about it and engaged with it meaningfully, he wouldn't have probably killed the people that he was trying to kill. The, the bullies probably wouldn't have died, but he would have done that in a way that navigated it better and when he felt rejected by Laura or felt like she didn't love him, even though he wanted her to love him, maybe the price was that he doesn't know how to deal with his emotions. And so, you know, if it's going to come out sideways against 
people that maybe deserve it is in as far as the ideology of the film is set up, it's going to come out sideways against people who don't also. And that's like the price he's going to pay for not figuring out how to deal with his emotions in a, in a way that he's actually aware of. Right. Okay. So I don't know how that feeds into the, I took what was rightfully mine. That seems like a really crucial line to me and it's, mm-hmm. it doesn't quite go, but if I like jam it in, it might kind of go. No, I think it might go. Yeah. So the benefit is he gets to kill off his, his abusers and the cost is he loses the girl that he, the woman that he likes. But they probably also don't deserve to die. And she probably also, and then she also doesn't, he gets the sex, but he doesn't get the love out of it. I mean, it's very, I was just looking at Robin Wood's essay again, where he lays out his notion that the whole collective nightmares thing of, you can see movies as the, Shoot, now I can't think of the surplus repression of a society. And this is precisely Freudian surplus repression and sex and death are the extremes that motivate you. And, uh, but yeah, so what's rightfully mine is, so I I mean, that's really trophy, right? I guess the, and the title of the film tells us, right? So in exchange for the retribution of killing the abusers, he pays the price of the girl that he thinks he likes. I wasn't even going to say in exchange for expressing those feelings and those emotions, for getting them out and actually enacting them. He pays the price of not having done so thoughtfully and in a way that actually feeds into his life. It's like he did it blind, literally, I guess, because they put the blindfold mm-hmm. on him. And so it happened, but it didn't happen in a way that he really got to control. And because he wasn't in control, then I I was almost thinking like what's rightfully mine in the sense that this is what unfettered emotion will do. And so maybe you you can't, like you can't control it or you you don't get to do that. So there's going to be some downside, some dysfunctional side to it. Oh yeah. I like that. Right. If you repress it sufficiently that you're, you're not coping with it consciously when it gets expressed you're you're going to pay the you're going to you're going to pay the price of that lack of emotional maturity or or honesty or whatever you want to call it in that um right it, well i mean ultimately it's going to kill you right but uh, cuz he does he ends up getting get it, the police end up shooting him at the end but it may also lead you to, I guess, sex, meaningless sex, which he said specifically he doesn't want to do earlier. So he still can't, he still isn't being able to sort out his actual emotions. God, I feel like I'm losing something again here. Laura, how did he, he, let's see, he, well, let's look at the flip side of that. So the victims are the super douchey guy who's no the other guy who like pushes him in that first interaction and then is like yelling at um i spent money on tickets uh, whatever him so he's like the far end of toxic masculinity hegemonic masculinity aggressive this and that and then his roommate who like kind of well sets him up but his roommate was pretty awful i mean I, i i question which of those two were worse they were both terrible 
Well, okay, but the roommate is much more like uh, emotionally, mentally abusive. The other guy is was overtly aggressive, physically aggressive. And then the third person, we don't even really know. The guy with the Hawaiian shirt. Whoever the third friend was, who really just, we just see it at the party and then is the first victim, right? And he's complicit in it, but he was also sort of, uh, he, he did not seem as culpable as, he was sort of going along with it. The roommate sets him up and orchestrates it. The other guy leads the abuse. The other woman. Oh, yeah. He gets All right. in a strangely sexual way. He doesn't kill the other woman, does he? Yeah, doesn't she get stabbed in like a sexual thrusting kind of? Wait, does she? I think so. That's what I saw, at least. The woman who was at the party who like eggs them on or? The one with the curly hair who's, yeah, who breaks the news that Laura left and she was upset. He, d- he dies. I think the couple, the, the guy who was complaining about the tickets... And the, his girlfriend, I think they die at the same time. And I think she gets stabbed in a way that was... Okay, so okay, so I missed that. So, so he does kill both men and women for, uh, for participating. Oh, and I just, I'm seeing Laura as you're zipping through this, putting her head on his shoulder. And I just, I just couldn't help but think, I, I guess she's trying to be nice or something. I don't really know what she's doing. I mean, at first I thought she was a trophy. She was a meaningless trophy. And so she had no personality or merit or anything aside from her utility toward him. Like, like she was being handed to him to tell him he was better than the bullies. Then when she said that she was doing it out of pity, sort of, she alludes to that. I thought, well, that's better because I feel like she could at least be a real person potentially then. But then I got really critical of her because that seems really ridiculous. And are you actually trying to be kind to him? Because that's not, he's obviously going to like, fall in love with you and then you're just going to leave him and he's going to be miserable forever because nobody else is going to want to date. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm generalizing too much there, but it just didn't seem that kind to let him think that you really like him, sleep with him, especially when he particularly says, I don't want meaningless sex. Right. And decide, oh, okay, well, I'm done with that now. Yeah, that, okay. right. That's not, that's not so great. She wasn't, and she was never, I feel like that was a bit of a fault in the film that no referendum was really laid down on her. Yes, she died, but it was unclear whether that was a sad side effect of what was going on or if that was intentional. And I think that should have been played out a little bit better because I think she deserved to be. What she did with him really deserved a referendum and deserved its own mention in the film. And it was, it was not incorporated enough. It was played down too much, I think. The fact that she, she was manipulative or dishonest in her attentions and... And had sex with him, even though, like you said, he specifically, that's what you would have liked. Let me finish that thought. I guess what I hear you saying is it's her death was not presented as a referendum on her being manipulative. It was presented as a referendum on, it was a price he paid because of the violence he enacted on the other three men. So he got what he wanted there. He didn't get what he wanted with that and given that she was also being dishonest and manipulative it would be more what consistent to have had her also be killed as as someone who is taking advantage of him or is or is being dishonest with him or whatever just not nice yeah and at least way more interesting because she is less clear-cut you know it's it's like uh uh I spit on your grave. 
right? That's each character that dies is a different place on the spectrum of the type of bad behavior that's being enacted toward this woman. And when we see them die and we see them deserve the vengeance as in, in terms of the view of the film, that's a referendum of the morality the film is laying down. And so here I do, I absolutely think it was not, this was not just a critique of Maury. They were totally laying down a referendum on this bullying type behavior. But it's really interesting. She's, I think, the more interesting case. She's the one that, I, we didn't know enough about her to, I think, even have me fully formed an opinion about whether she did or didn't deserve this and whether she was intending to do right or wrong or whatever. But there were certainly some sketchy things about what she was doing. And so it's, it's a missed opportunity that she, again, serves as a, she's an indication of his behavior or his culpability. But she, on her own, doesn't stand as a character and doesn't get a referendum laid down on her behavior, which is probably the most interesting behavior of the film. Okay, yes, I agree with all that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely a sexual stabbing. Right, uh, right, between, the, right between the legs, as a matter of fact. Which I wonder was maybe its own sidewaysness of his desires and, you know, whatever coming out. Because he hasn't had sex yet, right, at this point in the film. Right. I don't think he has. Right, right. She didn't directly, I don't remember her name, sorry, but... Jenny? She, no, that wasn't Jenny. Jenny is uh, Laura's friend that she watches. Oh, Christy. Christy, yeah. Christy didn't directly antagonize Maury. Maybe a little? No. She, what did she do? Was she complicit at the party? Did she, did she put the robes around him? I more think of her as kind of milling around in the background and not being bothered by it. Yeah, she definitely was not bothered by it. But I thought it was a woman who puts the ropes around him. Because don't they send her to, like, get him a drink? Yeah, she's at the table with them. That's right, she is at the table. We had that exact same table in my crappy college apartment where we would sit and do exactly what they're doing. So here's the four perpetrators. Right. Does she ever do anything? Oh, no, this guy is the one who goes, okay, okay. Right, she's just a passive bystander who is also laughing about it and jokes about it. And uh, yeah, so she has that sort of complicity or culpability. I think though too then, I'm realizing a thread here with our two female characters that both get, we could say a referendum laid upon them, but maybe not. They're treated differently than the, the men, I would say absolutely get a referendum laid on them. The Christy, I don't know if that was, that he thinks she's terrible and she deserves it or that he kind of sideways wanted to have sex with her. Is she a symbol of his sexual desire or is she in that scene? Because she's very clearly yeah, right. the knife. Right. Or is she someone who deserved it? And that's interesting that both she and Laura didn't then get treated as actual argumentative points. Yeah, I was, I was so focused on the three guys. I'm so glad you brought that up. Hawaiian shirt is stabbed as well but just in the chest or whatever. She's the only one. And then the roommate is the one who's strung up with barbed wire. That's the only sort of exotic killing, right? Yeah, and that that was done while he was having sex with Laura. Well, I guess temporarily must not have been happening at the exact same time, but it was shown to us. Yes, right. It was cross-cut, yeah. So yes, Christy is not directly involved in the abuse of him but is is killed and she has her own culpability it's like she does but the film doesn't discuss it 
And if, if she does, she's, she's more interesting. She's like Laura. She's got a less direct and obvious kind of culpability. And I just think that death scene, I, don't, I mean, I guess it is a referendum on her somewhat, but I feel like the way it's done, it's like her, her sexuality eclipses her acts as a person. Yeah. And that leaves, um, that leaves only Jenny, uh, who, we act, who has any sort of lines or any kind of presence who is left untouched, who lives. And she is not involved at the party or just isn't at the party at all and is, encourages Lara to be honest and is disapproving of her being dishonest with Maury and her intentions and her interactions with him. It's, I mean, it is. It's, it's still a referendum on... That's so funny. It's, it's a referendum on, on these, uh, these bullies with the exception of, well, not the exception. So again, we, it's, it's in exchange for, for getting retribution at these bullies. You're also paying the price of having meaningless sex. And like you said, I think that is, are two pieces of a larger point, which is the repressed emotion is ultimately unhealthy and will, will erupt in really unhealthy ways. I just, it's, it's so funny because what, what am I I'm thinking? It's like, they're saying like, how about this? Maybe it would have been nice to have had, I'm trying to think what a, a counter, a counterpoint would have been somewhere where he was slighted, but stood up for himself, like some sort of growth of, but no, if you have growth, then do you kind of get what I'm saying? Like if the problem is that, not that he was bullied, because you don't want the referendum to be, I don't want the referendum to be this horrible, abusive situation. You shouldn't stand up for yourself. It should just be you shouldn't go kill the people. <laughs> you need to stand up for yourself. You need to, like, they need to pay a price, but the price should not be murder, right? And Laura should also pay a price for, but she isn't, she, okay, she does pay the price of her life. She should pay a price for being emotionally deceptive or, or, inten- or deceptive in terms of intentions. Uh, I don't know that the film actually plays that out. I wish it did. I don't know that it does. Right, right. That's what we would like to have, have happened, which is what you've been saying. And then he pays the price of, of not being able to just, I guess, deal with, deal with these emotional experiences well, I think he pays the price of losing his own life. And I mean that literally because he dies, right. but also because he loses his freedom. I mean, he, he, he no longer has the ability to control his own life. He's going to be arrested or something. At least he's not. But he pays the price because of his repression, right? Right. Not really because he kills these other people. He, he doesn't pay the price for killing the three guys and and Christy, right? He pays the price for killing Lara. I guess so, yeah. Okay. It's at least nuanced. There's a couple of layers there. It's, it's interesting. I, I want to throw out one complication, maybe. So Christy, it's interesting that Christy, immediately before dying, I think we as the audience are put on her side against the men, slightly, during the sexual encounter that she has with, I don't remember his name. She has sex with him. 
Jerky jerk face. Right. <laughs> I think it's it must be Dan. Because Jay is his roommate, right? Right. And uh, I don't know who the other guy is. So whatever. Because he has sex with him. Jay, Dan. Okay, he, anyway. He looks like he's having a great time. He rolls off and is like, hey, wasn't that great for you? And this felt like a throwback to your screenplay, Marshall, that she's like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. Oh, yeah. She's and, totally unimpressed. Yeah. And I feel like in that scene, we're put on her side against, again, against this sort of bullying form of masculinity, which again makes me think that, that they're the real villains and yeah. that this is a man's story because I, I certainly felt like we were in her shoes. When she goes to the bathroom, we go with her. So when she comes back and she dies, I'm not entirely sure that was a referendum on her or if the female characters that died were not actual characters upon whom a referendum would or wouldn't be laid. They were instead tokens to tell the story of the men in the story. So she was a sexual object in that scene, I think more because of that, because we were put in her shoes for a moment there. We were never, and we would not be put in the shoes of any of the three male perpetrators. They were definitely the villains and they were definitely meant to die. And Laura, it was just confusing whether we were what she was. We didn't hate her, at least. She wasn't presented as a villain. So I, I think actually the film just laid a referendum down on the three men and used the women as, as sort of tokens to do that, to tell their story. But it's too bad because actually the two female characters, in my opinion, were the more interesting. Like if a referendum had been laid down on either of them, those would be way more interesting referendums. Yeah, totally. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the women were an afterthought or an incidental props in in telling the story of the of the men the men or the villains i was trying to think if uh because there's the point of view scene do do we we get point of view of uh of the doppelganger with with laura i don't know i thought we got point of view somewhere oh no we don't because we don't even see that he just comes back and she's dead oh no we're in his point of view that's a pretty nicely structured little sequence there. I would also say, you know, this, yes, I think you're right. And uh, I think there was an effort here at the end. This, I think, is very much an allusion to the end of Psycho, right? Or at least trying to be or nod to, to be, so, which would be very much a similar. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I don't, I, I think you're right. I think it's a real wasted opportunity to have not established the women and done whatever you were going to do with them as a counterpoint to masculinity as also problematic either as enablers of that sort of toxic masculinity or having their own problematic approaches through other kind of deception or use of sex for manipulation or I don't know, whatever it was. Yeah. So I, I've been looking at the rubric again. I've got that, which one of the things we have talked about us trying to hit, again, is how would we improve the film? And I think that would be a key way to improve the film is, is do, something, do something intentional with the, with the women characters. I think you're absolutely right with that, Laura. Absolutely. And, and that really involves then figuring out what, you, what referendum, if any, I know what referendum you want to lay down on Laura. That's, I think, the most fascinating question of the film, I would say, which was completely left out. Yeah, I think that's it. And I have to say that that, it does also surprise me because I have recollection of at least Proxy being actually focused on the women characters. And in both of these films, Quench and In Exchange, the women are just 
props, like you said, at best, or just not even, not even regarded, um, not even considered. Yeah. And, you know, I realized in what I just said there that, that I was saying that Laura was the most interesting question of the movie. That's not true. I think the most interesting question of the movie absolutely was the question they addressed, which was this sort of repression of emotions and what that can do. And I think that's, that's great because that part they did really well. The other piece, the other end of that spectrum, which is what I thought it was starting off as a movie about, your standard slasher film, or gosh, there was a moment where I, I thought, oh, this is going to be a really interesting counterpoint to like Rape Revenge that we've watched because oh, yeah. there's not rape, but there is vaguely sexual bodily violation. And in this case, it's of a man and he's going to, I thought, stand up for himself in some way, whatever that looks like, and enact some kind of revenge, and we're going to be along for the ride. And that was going to be really interesting, because we haven't seen a film, a revenge film like that, where it's a male character enacting revenge, and that was going to be interesting. Totally. Which isn't where it went. But anyway, when I thought the film was about laying down a referendum on our villains, I, that, I think Laura's the most interesting of those. And she was omitted, I guess is all I was trying to say. I, I do still think it did a great job with the primary the primary argument it was trying to make, which was this, this repression argument. I, I, yes, I agree. I agree. I think that was, I think that's, I think that's it. Um, and like I said, I'm very curious to see if my recollection is accurate that in the later two films that they were much more women focused. I'm curious to see that. So. Well, and scaling to my recollection also dealt with, shades of gray in terms of morality and played with that a lot and so it's interesting in this film that we had plenty of shades of gray that were i think mostly omitted because they were the women and it just dealt with the really low-hanging fruit in terms of bad bullying behavior oh that's what i was gonna say so then that what you said there makes me think that a counterpoint was if you had some sort of character who was and even it could have been jenny who was just like appropriately assertive or appropriately like not emotionally repressed or somebody who like if we had seen her but if there would have been some even that could have been a very small piece or small scene of someone who had again some slight and they responded appropriately and like the problem was resolved that would have served as a great counterpoint to the to the chaos of the rest of the film i think you're exactly right and that would have been great and I would even like to have seen it worked into the fabric of the film such that it played into the main story somehow. I don't, I don't know exactly how that would have been, but I think that would have been great. Yeah. I think for me, that's, that's all I got. That's, do you have more? No, I noticed that the last name of Tired Guy or something in the credits was Parker. And I was wondering if that was his brother or something because the age looked roughly okay, right. I, I was thinking that was the guy, the funny character who answered the door, who just was like standing there with his shirt off like uh, and then disappeared i would bet and that's something we can ask him as well we should be writing these down i suppose if this wasn't literally just friends and friends of friends and family or whoever you could get to, to jump that, though didn't you feel like the acting was less distractingly bad for sure than quench Oh, for sure. In Quench, was it Gina? I don't remember her name. The, the one character that was sort of better than the rest, she was better in the sense that I didn't notice her acting. And the rest of the characters, I, I noticed them acting and I noticed the dialogue. Sometimes I'll see it written on a page when it's not very good. 
I just can't help but visualize it that way. And in this, I didn't feel that, actually. I thought the acting was fine. So I, I wonder if he had a really talented group of friends or... Maybe he was in film school and these were the people who he was in film school with, so they were committed. And then the next movie, it was, it was whoever he could scrape together after... We'll have to ask him where he, where he pulled talent from. And yeah, I'm looking forward to next week and hoping for a leap forward in quality. <laughs> you too. Expecting it. Uh, yeah. And a little bit hoping. <laughs> I won't say I'm nervous. I just feel like these films have been very different. Very different. Yeah. So what I would characterize him as has been totally yeah. out in these films. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Do you want to, do we want to grade? C. Done. I think, I mean, like, eh. <laughs> yeah, maybe C minus because we don't get a clear, because we lose clarity with the women and, and the women are totally disregarded. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, I was going to say, the gender stuff was pretty bad. What did I give Tucker and Dale? I got angrier in Tucker and Dale than I did by far than I did in this, but that might just be because the overall production quality was lower. It's kind of like what you're saying about Elijah Wood and uh, Come to Daddy. Yeah. That if you have more resources and more talent and a better ability to make an impact, then it somehow seems more problematic that you didn't catch yeah. the fact that your main female character matters. I like C minus. I'm happy with that. I, I suppose emotional repression is some sort of real issue. There isn't a whole lot of empathy. I didn't like you said. That's kind of interesting. I didn't. I didn't like Maury. I didn't really like anyone. That's kind of cool. If everybody got reprimanded. Yeah, it's cool that you didn't like anyone except for the one who didn't get reprimanded. The only person I didn't have ill will toward was Jenny. I mean, I'm not saying I loved her. She just seemed all right. Yeah, right. <laughs> she seemed all right. Totally. Right. She got left out of all the shenanigans. So. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. The gender stuff. I, I think we got to go see one. I don't think I would cut it to not getting, you know, credit for the major. It was all like fine with some problems. I think it was a C minus film. Absolutely. Does it provoke, provoke or address any of our most interesting questions in the world? No, but it had a question. That's not uninteresting. How do, right. How do you resolve emotional repression or, or how do you assert yourself? Or Well, I guess maybe we do even want to add that. Not, I wouldn't say based on this film, if anything, that's making me think more of Eden Lake and conversations we've had that I think have been a lot more nuanced or interesting around this. But when is violence appropriate? assertiveness versus <laughs> whatever <laughs> not necessary and therefore evil yeah that's a pretty good question yeah i don't think this this film really did a lot with it but it was it was in there it was adjacent to it yeah right and that's something i mean that's something certainly yeah. i i honestly do think the setup was more interesting than a lot of slasher films because it was cool that it wasn't just the victims that were being reprimanded and I, because I expected that for like halfway through the film and I was irritated with Maury, it was really rewarding for me when Maury started to get critiqued at the end. Gosh, I just wanted Maury to be critiqued. That part's killing me, but it's something. Yeah, well, right on. Well, I will make this note because Laura, you made it last week of, this is the second in our mini series devoted to the films of Zach Parker. It's the second in our mini series of four it is his first film. This and Quench are his first two, which are, are rough, are amateurish. And I 
I don't say that as insult, just fact. There's still merit, particularly, I think this one, oddly, was noticeably better than Quench. But if you are listening and you're just baffled why you're sitting through these movies or even sitting through our discussion, you can give us one more week or you can just skip ahead. <laughs> and we'll be, we'll be dealing with Scalene next week, which we have seen and which we have bef- at least before had a really great discussion and was, we're really impressed by the film. And I that's what I'll say too, just to, I think I said this last week as well, the first half of Scalene, the first time I saw it, I was unimpressed. I remember thinking it was sort of amateur and I didn't think it was going to redeem itself. And it absolutely did as far as I was concerned. So if you start off Scalene, especially after this lead in and think, oh, I'm just going to turn this off, hang in there because I really do think it was worth it. I distinctly remember having that impression the first time. So either bear with us or at least understand that our approach and our justification for all of this is these final two films, Scalene and Proxy, are films that we found to be really exceptional and provoking of excellent discussion. So we appreciate you joining us and we hope you'll at least give us a chance with Scalene. Horror films are our collective nightmares. Ooh, hold on. What's he reading here? I tried. I couldn't see it. I tried to figure it out. It was Assimilation as a social problem. I thought I saw a social problem. Is that what it says? It, yeah, I think it must be. Oh, God, I wish I could see something else. Oh, yeah. Look at that. <laughs> what is he reading? Anyway, sorry. Uh, I just happened to sit there. So I'm excited for next week. Yeah, I know. Now I'm the one with the cat running around in the background who's getting in the way. <laughs> I, I don't let him on the table, but he likes to come on the table when I'm over here, but I'm trying to keep him off the, like, kitcheny surfaces and let him on other surfaces, which has been going fairly well until I sit here and I'm on the computer, because I think he can tell, or at least he's learned, that he doesn't get yelled at, because I don't want to interrupt Zoom meetings by screaming at the cat. So, like, whenever I was doing my training thing this morning, whatever, he's always up here all over the table. And then when I'm not, when I'm quiet, he's got it figured out. And like, he won't jump up because he knows I'm going to yell at him. You don't do spray bottle? I, yeah, I guess, you know, maybe I should do that. Like while I'm on Zoom. Yeah, I have a spray bottle. I usually try to yell at him first. And then if he blatantly disobeys, I get the spray bottle out. We're still struggling with that because we didn't apparently do as rigid of a enforcement uh, as we should have when they were kittens. And we regret it now. Chris in particular. So I would say that uh, I would say that you should just there's no making up time. Once they see any flexibility in a boundary, yeah. they're gonna take advantage of it. So I would start with the spray bottle like as soon as possible. Yeah, I, I have been doing the spray bottle, just not like I said, he I think he's get because I think he gets it better. My impression is that he gets it better when I yell at him and he actually gets down on his own than when he's like he sprayed and then he goes and like licks his spray wounds. But like I don't know. I think he's actually learning to like opt not to do it. Not from the evidence I've seen. <laughs> so much better. You have no idea what it was like a week ago. Vast progress. Vast progress. Because the other thing he may be learning is if I get up on the table while you're on the computer, I get attention. 
Well. Because you pick them up and. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. So whatever. It's a work in progress. He's way better. He hasn't gotten on the counters like at all in like at least a week. And he sometimes now, like if he jumps up on the table, he cowers. Like he expects to get yelled at, which is weird because I'm like, why don't you just, hey, why don't you just get off the table? And so I think he's still confused. I'm not sure. We're getting there. I'm just, that's my advice. So you can Thank you. certainly leave it. Thank you. Be right back. <laughs> rigid, rigid, consistent enforcement as early as possible is, is uh, yeah. Because, yes, they are line steppers. They will, they will continue to test you. <laughs> uh, and mostly what, our, what my cats have learned is, much to Chris's frustration, is don't get on the counters when we're there to enforce it. <laughs> yeah, which I'm just kind of expecting, honestly, but that's yeah. better. Yeah, it is. I mean, it won't be in my way there, and I won't have to look at it or have people over and be sitting at the dinner table and have the cat walking across the table. That would be preferable. Right. It'd be nice if he didn't get his gross little litter box feet on the counter, but I guess I'll just... Poopy go. paws. Poopy paws. <laughs> yes. That's, that's Chris's... Chris's, uh, yes. No poopy paws on the counter. Yes. Where is that? Where does he kill? It must be... It's a little farther along. So it was after the roommate ends up home alone because he's, oh, there we go. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, okay. Because if they don't I'm on water. I'm going to get water. I'll be back. Sorry. Hi, Omar. Omar went for the coffee, didn't he? 